Linux Out Loud is firing up our mics, connecting those headphones as we search the community for themes to expound upon. We keep the banner-friendly conversation somewhat on topic and have fun doing it. This week, we are spouting off about changes in open source projects, their leadership, and the directions of those projects after those changes happen. Let's get into this episode. Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean and Bitwarden. And with me today is the photographer extraordinaire, Wendy, and the person with the totally, totally unhealthy obsession with OpenSUSE. I just watched Ryan's 90-day video, and Nate, Ryan said something that hmm, I had complained about multiple times on this episode. What's going on, guys? I'm doing great, and I've never disagreed with your statement on that. Even people in OpenSUSE don't disagree with that, and it's being worked on. (laughs) (laughs) And you're back! Holy crap, we haven't seen you for a couple weeks. Welcome back. Yeah, life. Yeah. I think you owe us at this point. Hey, I left you with a four-game salute last time I was here, so it's fine. Maybe. Thing is, I was really, really missing some of the banter that goes on between you guys during the last couple shows, and the show notes have been incredibly boring the last couple weeks. <laughs> I mean, holy crap. I tried to make up for it today. <laughs> yes, you did. I was going to say you did because I did change all the show notes for certain segments that Nate had put in. Thank you, Nate, as always. <laughs> With the fun introductions and friendly banter, let's get into some actual topics and maybe we'll keep it on conversation. Yeah, not likely. Yeah, not likely. We're usually going off the rails somewhere. Wendy, what have you been up to? <laughs> I've actually got to spend more time playing with my Spike Prime robot over the last week. And I have to say, I'm absolutely loving it. The kids have built a few different kind of fun things this last weekend they used one of the lessons from lego one of the not pre-built projects but build instructions to build a robotic arm using of course our hub and you're using the pressure sensor as a button and they give you kind of some base code to make it work. One, to help you learn how to properly code the robot. We are all still learning Python, so I definitely need that as well. My son and I had gotten it all typed out in VS Code, had gotten it downloaded onto the robot, and then it wouldn't work, and I could not figure out why it wouldn't work. Like, I went over it and over it and over it, And I did a little bit more digging, more instruction on Python somewhere else, because it needed to be a true statement. Wait until this thing is true and then perform these actions. And they kept telling me that there was improper syntax on line seven. And I was looking at line seven and I couldn't find anything wrong with it. So then... As I'm going through this other documentation, trying to figure out what could potentially be wrong with the code, it dawned on me. I didn't put the stupid colon in. And it wasn't line seven. It was the line (laughs) above it, line six, which was the when true, then, of course, do the following. And it was that colon that made the whole code not work. And it just reiterates the fact that it can be something as silly as not putting a piece of punctuation in. That makes a huge difference. And the colon was there on the paper from Lego Education. Just happened to miss it. It didn't get put in. And then the whole thing didn't work. And I spent probably a half hour being frustrated trying to figure out why it wouldn't work. So, yeah colons matter they sure do and it's funny how like one little character takes the whole thing down 
which emphasizes the fact that bugs are easy to creep in just by a slight omission. Right, exactly. It's so simple for something as simple as a piece of punctuation to not work. And I already knew that because I've seen that in the Python class that I'm doing with other kids on Thursdays. We're all learning Python together in that class. And there's been multiple times where they tell me, hey, my code's not working. I go and look at it and I'm like, oh yeah, this is capitalized when it should be. Or, you know, some silly, simple punctuation thing here. But when it's a completely different language and these rules matter and how it performs the task, not having those things or having them where they're not supposed to be makes a Big deal of difference. And my downfall on Saturday was a colon. I saw the video shared in the Matrix group. I think it's so super cool, the whole thing. One, obviously the motors in the robots now are way better than those motors we had in the robot kits from the 1980s. So that's awesome. I'm sure it's better on power consumption as well. It really excites me and I really want to buy that kit. I just can't do it right now. I don't want to distract myself again from something that really needs to be done here. Right. And I forgot about that conversation we had last week because I was eagerly waiting to actually run that code for the first time. And I did share a video. I think that was just with you in Matrix, but I haven't shared it with everybody yet. So I will go ahead and do that, share that video with everybody else. I've got the first two runs of using the robot. And the first time I run it, I think you remember what I said, Nate, oops, wrong direction. So I'd put in the turns and we're using the gyro inside of the robot to determine where it is in position. And yeah, I had it going left when it needed to go right. <laughs> so that was an immediate stop. <laughs> that happens in real life to me too. <laughs> Whoops, wrong direction. Then I went back, changed it so that the turns are right, but it's still not ending up in the same positions. And so there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. I did get there a half hour early. I had to go have a door to the closet unlocked. So it did take a little bit longer in order to get everything set up so that I could actually run it. Kids started showing up as I was trying to tweak and change things. So over the course of the rest of the semester, I'll try to continue getting there early and slowly tweak it until it does that run exactly like it's supposed to. One of the really, really nice things about coding this in Python instead of Scratch and using VS Code instead of the proprietary application is it's really, really easy to put comments in there and for me to note changes that I have made, just kind of build on that over time and what needs tweaked and changed over the course of it. The wheels are a lot bigger on this robot. I think I mentioned that last week than when they originally built it. We did some things to make some sensors work. And so I knew regardless, even if it was the exact same code written in scratch, just transferred over and adjusting the code to account for the different wheel size, there would still be some tweaking that needs done. That's just kind of how these projects work. So I look forward to finally getting it completely ready to go. I wish I had like an hour, two hours to myself in our team room to just knock it out because it drives me nuts not having it finished. I am one of those personalities that it's going to grate on me and bug me until I figure it out and I have it right. So hopefully we are done with co-op like the first part of May. Hopefully I've got it all worked out by then. It's going to take me putting in some 
some extra time getting there early to get it done. Yeah, it's awesome you came in early to do that. Is the building normally open? Like, is that not a problem to get in early or how does that work? Yeah, the building is already unlocked to us at the time that I get there. So that's not too big of a deal. I mean, if it's too early, then yeah, it'll be locked. But I got there about a half hour before classes start. And so by that time, the building was already locked. It's not too much longer before other people are showing up to start setting up rooms, moving tables, getting it ready for us to be there anyway. So in the scope of things, it wasn't that early, but it was definitely a half hour earlier than we needed to be there for classes. That's awesome. Did it excite the kids at all when they saw you messing with it? Like it kind of motivate them a little bit more? It did. They're like, oh, that's really cool. And I got to show them parts of the code that I worked on and some of the things that I had figured out as they are getting ready to code a new attachment for their robot. They built a rack and pinion attachment for it. And so now they're going to try and figure out how to code that, how to make that work. Because one of the things that we didn't figure out over the course of competition season was to move this really large Lego object onto a stand. And it needed to be sitting flat, not touching the board in any way on its holder. And you scored a whole lot of points with that. And we just couldn't figure it out beforehand. Part of it was time-wise, we were extremely crunched for time. But now that competition's over, they've built this other attachment. We have time to learn some of these different tools in preparation for next year. And where I've already been diving into this side of the code, it can help as we're moving forward in this new attachment during this off-season time. That's super cool. Man, I really want to get that robot kit. I really do. I just can't do it yet. Nate, something tells me it's going to be running OpenSUSE or some type of version of OpenSUSE. It can't. No, it's a microcontroller, so I wouldn't be able to. But if it could. (laughs) Something tells me you would still attempt. (laughs) If he could. No. He would, without a doubt. Speaking of projects, you got your Commodore 1541 Imposter Complete. I've seen pictures. It's absolutely fantastic. How is that working? How did the rest of that construction go? Well, I ended up having to make another revision to the design of the tray that holds the main components. There were just too many issues with the one I did. I could have probably just reworked everything, but I had to make pretty significant changes, spin some things around. I assembled it, soldered in the switch, put in IEC 6320 C14 connector, which is what you see on the back of every PC in the power supply. That's what that connector is called. I know because I had to figure it out. No one ever calls it by its proper name because it's too long. So I got it all wired in, hooked up, everything zip tied nicely. So it's not, you know, there no, it's not like a spaghetti mess that if you open up the case, it just goes everywhere. So everything's kind of neatly, mostly neatly tucked in. I've been actually using it pretty heavily. Primarily, I needed the media card readers. Now, I had a card reader that was dangling off the back of my Commodore 64 imposter, but it wasn't convenient to use. And I was always like reaching behind the computer. It just felt messy and unkempt. Also, I had too many things plugged into the computer, a lot of USB things, as well as that media card reader. And I had some things plugged into like that because I just didn't have enough ports. I have additional ports in the back of my 1541, two ports in the back. So my microphone and my webcam are on there. And then when I plug in my HDMI capture device, I can just plug that into the front of the 1541 imposter. So it's really convenient now to use. Like it's convenient to plug things in. It's convenient to use the SD card readers or the compact flash if I'm doing retro machines. So it's basically a huge convenience device. Having the proper switch in the back was kind of nice because I was gone for the weekend. And so I shut you know, everything down, put the computer just into sleep. I could reach in the back of the 1541 and shut that off very easily. And the other feature that I added to this that is not important now, but will become important is I put a two terabyte SSD inside of it for just additional storage. So it just acts as USB storage when I plug into it just for my use or whatever. 
And right now I'm just using it as kind of a holding spot. So like when I transfer a bunch of files to the computer, I throw it in there first, and then I'll sort it later. So it allows me to be just a little bit more lazy and a little bit more negligent of my data, I guess. It's just a backup, just an additional storage. But the nice thing too is if let's say I want to work in the house instead of here in my studio on my laptop, I can transfer all the files to that SSD, the two terabyte SSD on this 1541. And I can very easily just unplug it and take it over to the house and plug it into my laptop. So it's a useful device no matter the computer because it's just all USB 3. In that regard, it's kind of a lot of fun. And I think now that it's done, looking online at other options, I might have actually probably gone the USB-C route instead of the USB 3 because I could have probably saved a few bucks by going that route. The connectors are smaller and I think more ubiquitous now than the USB 3 style B that I used in the back of this. And I didn't want to use a USB A on the back of it for numerous reasons. No, I'm very happy with it. It was fun to build. It was a lot of work designing it and then a lot of time to print, about a day to print every time for the last two trays it took. The final result is it meets all my needs. It makes me happy because it matches. It's a good companion device. So it's kind of like I have my childhood Commodore setup, except with modernized components. I'm probably the only guy in the world that really cares to have that much of a matching device, but that's okay. I will be doing a video on it. I've started editing it. And since I started recording it, I've changed the script. So I'm going to be redoing some bits of it so that it has a better flow from beginning to end. And the goal is to keep it no more than 15 minutes for the video because I want to try and keep it interesting and keep the time watching percentage as high as possible. So hopefully I can tell the story well and I'm, I'm hoping that people enjoy it. I definitely enjoyed the iterations that you shared with us kind of back behind the scenes as you worked through it, figured it out and made it work. I have to say the final picture of it does look really, really cool. And I love the fact that you went back and tweaked the design itself to make it fit properly. So that way, if there is somebody else out there, and I'm sure there is, who wants the same thing, as far as the Sleeper Commodore 1541, then it'll be so much easier for them to take the step and get it put together. Yeah, I'm hoping. I'm going to put the designs out there for free for people. So if they want to download it, print it themselves, they'd have to get the same components to make it work exactly the same. But I'm going to have the free CAD files so anybody, literally anybody can open the files and change the features to make it fit for the components that they would like to use. Hopefully uh, somebody else will find it interesting enough, inspire them to do something maybe better, which would be hard to do something better, I think. You know, have some fun with it. So this is kind of the beginning of uh, some of my other, I don't want to call them crazy ideas, but... Let's just go ahead and say crazy ideas, the lack of words. I'm going to be modernizing some other things, but to know exactly what it is, you'll have to watch the video. At the very end, I will put a little teaser as to what else is to come. I would say I'm surprised by the fact that you're trying to go vintage while going modern, Nate, but I'm really just not. <laughs> I like modern things, but I like vintage things. And I think there's a happy balance between modern and vintage Maybe it's just a fun thing. There's probably not really a balance. I take that all back. <laughs> so, Nate, just because you like vintage things, may I make a recommendation for the Atari VCS then? Yes, please. You can get a $400 Ryzen, I think it's a Ryzen 3, Atari VCS that is designed in the classical wood form for like 400 bucks. Which you can upgrade the RAM, by the way, and the SSD. So you're talking about the new Atari VCS, not the original Atari VCS. Yes, not the original, but is designed in the original design language. Yeah. So I would like that uh, for sure. It would be actually a great device to have like in the living room, I think, more so than out here to make you know, like a smart TV smarter, I guess. I mean, just a, uh, you can do probably like the Steam game playing on there, but you can use the Steam link so it can to more powerful machine. Mm -hmm. What I do actually have planned, which is not going to be in the video, is what I have an Atari 
2600 empty shell, that's not going to be what it'll be at the end of this video. I do a lot of work <laughs> to figure that one out as well. Now it's going to be kicked down the road a little bit, but that'll come too. Not yet. Well, Matt, while I have been increasing the amount of tech around me by building things, you are dwindling down your tech even more? Yeah, even more. Despite Wendy giving me flack about having too much and all the other fun stuff, given certain things I said at the beginning of the year, it has been a motivator to get rid of some stuff. So like the HTPC that I have has recently just gotten sold because somebody else found the 21 by 9 aspect ratio on that more useful than me. That got sold. You know, just cleaning up some stuff and getting rid of redundant technology, I guess would be the best way. Tablets that I don't use, cell phones I don't use. That's just been a lot of the stuff. As an example, I have like a BlackBerry Z30 that I haven't used in probably three years. I'm going to send that out to Jill and give it a home for her. I'm a fan of BlackBerry OS, but Jill is the computer historian for DLN. That kind of stuff where it's got to go. Like <laughs> My junk drawer has become my junk office, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I would say I can't relate. The fact of the matter is I relate completely. One of the things I've been working on is trying to find a way to be more portable with my recording and stuff. Like if I want to do gameplay, capture, and that kind of stuff. Usually I had to do it on the box that's at my office, you know, with everything attached to it. Whereas now I was able to actually find a decent capture card that allows me to be totally mobile. Does 1080p, 60, can do 4K if I want it to. And I can attach that to my workstation, which I can take with me wherever I need to go. Drop that down. Generically right now, I'm pretty much just capturing Switch stuff just because it's the most portable. But once that Steam Deck gets here, I got a portable game capture solution on the go all the time. That's something I'm really looking forward to. That's the kind of stuff I'm trying to get rid of as far as like extra stuff that just doesn't fit a purpose or a need. Sometimes you're like, oh, I need that. Then you're like, oh, what do I use this for? <laughs> That's kind of become <laughs> my problem. When a device, I look at it and I sit there and question it. Besides gaming related things, consoles and that kind of stuff. If I sit there and look at a piece of tech and I'm like, what is your purpose? then I know it's time to find a different area for you to go, specifically not related to anywhere in my presence or my physical area, because it's probably going to get chucked if I don't get rid of it for somebody to find a better use for it. Well, I understand that struggle. I'll look at something and say, I have no purpose for this. And then if I sit there too long, I'm like, oh, wait, I could do this with it, or I could do this with it. I'm going to hang on to this. So I have to move myself to the next phase of saying, I have no purpose for this. It needs to find a new home. Yes. Trust me, that is, as technology enthusiasts, that's really hard sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. I often <laughs> think like if I had to vacate for whatever reason and grab and go things, what would be on that list versus what would not be on the list mm -hmm. and try and look at it things from that perspective, then I start having an anxiety attack. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, my laptop would go, my main laptop, and I would definitely take my Commodore imposters with me. But a lot of the stuff, I keep it because I like to play with it from time to time. Old computers that were important to me at one time mm -hmm. were my main machines. But I mean, I don't really need them anymore. But I think while I have the flexibility to keep it, I'm going to hang on to it. But some of the things I do need to get rid of, like someone asked if I had like an extra Pentium 4. I'm like, why? Yes, I do. Do you like OptiPlex? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not shocked by this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it's 64-bit. like, well, you can run 32-bit on it. But I have a 32-bit one as well. I'll probably send them pictures, see if they want that. I do need to start letting go of more things. You know, some things I keep around for parts, and I do dig into those parts pretty often. There's a difference between having, I think, parts, RAM, hard drives, SSDs, laptops, the weird laptop screws that come in different varying sizes for most machines nowadays. I think there is a place and a purpose for that kind of stuff. I have this example. There's three laptops that I'm sitting here looking at right now that have been sitting on 
on a shelf for like six months that I haven't touched. Stuff like that where you're just like, hmm, why do I still have you, right? I have a lot of stuff like that. I know I need to go through and do some serious spring cleaning, not just with my tech stuff, but my whole house needs kind of decluttered and gone through. But I have that same problem with just about everything. And it's because time and time again, I have said, oh, I don't need that anymore. I get rid of it. And then guess what? Then you need it. I did need it. So then I hold on to stuff that I probably never, ever will need again. But there's that fear of I don't want to go and spend money and buy it again because I've already had it. Yeah, I definitely understand that. I started putting things in plastic flip top totes, like any extra cables, whatever. I've, I've sorted things out by type of cable and whatever. And so that has actually freed up a lot of space, not having garbage boxes or mixed boxes. But then there comes a point when it's like, how many of these cords do I really need? And then when I was building my imposter 1541, it's like, oh, I'm so glad I didn't throw those out because I took a couple of them and I cut one of them up and then another one is actually a power cord for this. Then I'm back to, well, I'm glad I didn't throw things away. It's a back and forth for sure. I think I can get rid of some old Pentiums. I think that should be okay, right? I think so. Yeah, I think so. You're probably safe there. You're probably safe there, Nate. That boils back down to the 32-bit versus 64-bit. How long do you keep 32-bit when 64-bit's been around for, you know, 17 years now? Yeah. Right. And now, Nate, I know 17 years is a short amount of time for you. That's still too modern. Actually, when you start saying that, it's making my stomach turn a little bit, but for different reasons, because we have 17-year-olds coming into my reserve unit. That means you're getting old. Yeah. This episode of Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Cloud computing can be, let's say, complex. But standing up reliable, affordable cloud infrastructure really doesn't have to be. At DigitalOcean, you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, storage, database, and networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so you and your team can get back to doing what matters most, building world-changing apps that grow your business. DigitalOcean also provides you with predictable pricing, robust product docs, and services that developers love. DigitalOcean helps teams regardless of size, whether you're a team of one to a team of 1,000 people. DigitalOcean helps your team grow with their simple, powerful cloud computing services. As a listener of Linux Out Loud and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. In fact, even better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 credit when you sign up at do.co slash tux2022. That's do.co slash tux 2022. So again, you can get started with your $100 credit on DigitalOcean's awesome cloud platform by going to do.co slash tux 2022. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Linux Out Loud. Speaking of dwindling down in tech over time, projects come and go and change and leadership goes up and down and projects change directions. So I am curious with how you guys see this. We've seen changes in leadership. We've seen projects change direction quite consistently. Where do you guys sit in like projects and potentially either outgrowing their leadership or going a different direction with their leadership changing. 
How do you guys view that as far as a healthy atmosphere, perhaps, or is it an unhealthy atmosphere for projects to do that and be in that kind of position? Personally, I think it can go either way. It can be a really healthy thing or it can be kind of an upheaval to the community. People change, projects change, things happen. And I think that's one of the things we need to understand is there is nothing even if it's a proprietary program that necessarily lasts forever, they have leadership change that happens fairly regularly. Somebody else will come in and take over the company. Somebody else will be the head of this part of the code. Those things happen even if somebody had been there for 10 years, 20 years, the beginning of it. There is still turnover because projects want to go in different directions. People have different life things that happen and it can be handled in a way in which is beneficial, positive for everybody around. Hey, this is a mutual, we're parting ways. And then it can be also done in ways that's kind of traumatic, especially in the open source community. And I mean, traumatic is in it really upsets the community around that project. There is a great upheaval. There's a lot of questions that go unanswered, or there's a lot of dirt mud being thrown, which results in work not being positively focused on the project, but this horrible drama between people. And I am not a fan of drama. I hung out with mostly guys in high school. That's how much I hated drama because I didn't like hanging out with ladies in my class just from the sheer amount of drama. I didn't have to deal with it with the guys. And so I still am not a fan of it now. And it's kind of frustrating when I see really, really awesome projects take a turn, somebody leave, and it's done in a matter that's ugly. Because there's really no need for that. And it's just harmful to the outlook of the project in general. Yeah, I was going to say, I think for me, a project that has a change in either leadership or direction and whatnot, it really does depend on how that transition does happen. Is it a smooth transition or is it one with, like you mentioned, when it, with a lot of upheaval and a lot of, I don't want to use the term drama, but there's, there's really no other adequate way to really portray that because all these things do happen out in the open generically with these projects. Not so much to the proprietary end of things that you mentioned, but you'll see it in specifically the open source end of things, you know, distros, applications, etc. I think probably the best example of a project that went from what it was to a different, well, not different, but a continuation, but with a kind of a different focus is probably from Interagos to Endeavor OS. Interagos is very, we're, we're getting done, but they left it open enough for the community to kind of take up and run with the project if they so decided. And that's kind of really what happened. So I think for me, that's probably the best example of seeing a project continue, even if it veers off in kind of a different direction than say the original project. Yeah, that one went very well, really. Didn't seem like there was any kind of drama around that. The community basically just changed their name and continued on with some changes, of course. They have much lower technical burden as Endeavor OS than they did under Antigros. Antigros, Albert said. But this wasn't the first like major upheaval that I experienced while being in Linux. The first one I experienced in Linux was when Mandrake Linux, when they when the company kicked out the founder, I'm not gonna say his name right, but Gal Duval. There was a lot of upset people in the Mandrake Linux community. This is like 2003, 4, or 5. I don't know when it was exactly. You know, he went off and he did his own thing. And I'm not sure what he's doing now. I think he's working on like a Google-free Android OS because that's never been done before. You know, it was upsetting for me as a, a new Linux user and seeing like this happen. Like, why would a community do that? Why would someone, basically the Mandrake company fired him, I guess, or something like that. 
Mandrake continued on, sort of. I mean, eventually it became Mandriva, and then it kind of lost its way in some aspects. Pretty much it fizzled out. And now there's open Mandriva and Magia, and they're going fine, I guess. Sometimes I think that the loss of the founder can in many ways be devastating to a project. When Duval left Mandrake, Mandriva, whatever, at that time, it didn't seem like there was as much excitement. You have that personality. Not, not saying that the cult of personality is a good thing, but you lost some of the personality of the distribution. There's something missing when someone who created it, who founded it, who made it from nothing into something is no longer a part of it. And it does kind of put a bad taste in my mouth when they're forced out. I don't really like that. And I think I was okay with leaving the Mandriva for OpenSUSE when... The loss of the founder of Mandrake made it easier for me to transition away from Mandrake, essentially. So when I went to OpenSUSE, a much different community, a much different thing. It didn't have that same kind of cult of personality, but had lots of people as a part of it. And so I think there's something to be concerned about when those types of things happen. Yeah, I think some of the problem I found, you mentioned Nate, the, the cult of personality is a thing to an extent, but I view that in a good and bad kind of direction. A project can be defined by the leader. So people have kind of that central point to, you know, focus at and poke at. If there's uh, something with the project that needs to be addressed, there's that central figure. Sometimes I think, especially in an open source community, I think that is helpful at times, depending on the project. But at other times, it becomes a severe problem because a lot of the times those leaders, that cult of personality tends to make it look like they can never be in the wrong and that every decision, be it technical or philosophical or however, where you want to go with it is always right. That's a dangerous place to be for any project because then you aren't open to critical thinking and aren't open to constructive criticism of a project or a direction or any of that kind of stuff. The best type of leadership is always one that's willing to hear all sides as far as the development of your project and that kind of stuff, because somebody's perspective will bring in a different perspective that you might not have thought of. Fresh eyes, as morbid as this sounds, this is why things like cold cases and stuff always bring in fresh eyes. It's the same way with code and everything else. Different perspectives, different looks at how things are constructed and that kind of stuff. It's very much a double-edged sword on that particular end of things, though. It's largely to do with how they leave, though. If it's by force, that's one thing. But if it's, hey, I'm just done with this project, I'm going to move on to something else. I've lost my passion for it or whatever. That's very different in my mind. I definitely do agree with that. How people come and go does matter. <laughs> Can't disagree with that at all. But on the same note, sometimes part of the, while I personally don't like getting into the drama for some of these open source projects, you know, we've seen it with Audacity. We've seen it with some of these <laughs> projects that get taken over or people forced out or changed. It's just one of those things because it's an open project or an open platform, however you want to word that, it's available for everybody to see. And those in the media will take and run with that. It's drama. It drives everything on the internet, basically, it seems like. And bad news sells. Yeah. Gets clicks. Right. But if someone no longer has passion for a project, I'd much rather them leave than stay. So I would see that as a positive for the project. I have seen teachers, I've had teachers in school that really no longer had the passion for teaching, but they stayed and I really wish they would have went because one, their hearts weren't in it. I've seen some actually damage kids want to learn 
by the fact that they didn't really want to teach anymore. They were just there to be there. And in code, I think it's the exact same way. If you don't have the passion for this project, while it's not damaging the minds of children, it is affecting the overall tone of the project. It's it's affecting the overall quality of that code being written. So those people do need to step out. They're not willing to recognize that they shouldn't be there anymore. Management above them or other people in the group and the community need to say it's time to go. Now, there can be drama because that person throws a fit about being told they need to go even though they no longer have a passion for the project and are detrimental to it as a whole. I totally lost my train of thought with that. But that kind of wraps up that idea, I think. That people unwillingly in a project without passion are going to be more detrimental to the project than helpful. It was basically what you were saying. Yeah. And drama can come from changing or removing those people that should no longer be involved because they don't have passion for it anymore. They don't really actually want to be there, but they don't want to leave either. I don't know if that makes sense. Does it? No, it makes sense. In a well-run project, people are going to come and go anyway. You have, you know, drive-by contributors to a lot of projects. They come and go. And then you have people who are take leads in different aspects of the project, depending upon how the project's scaling out. I'm just thinking from an OpenSUSE perspective. But there have been changes in OpenSUSE where someone steps down as the manager of this and someone else just picks it up and it keeps going. There isn't the drama there. I mean, there is drama in the OpenSUSE community too. It doesn't happen all that often. Although when it does happen, it is very visceral. But there you go. You know, passionate people. There was an issue with Solus some time ago where Ike left the project and it was kind of an alert for a while. And the community was strong enough that they kept the project going and it's flourishing and doing fine today. And that's a different situation. Something happened there. I don't know. I don't particularly care. But the project continued, you know, because there was a very internal positive culture of Solus. So that's good. I'm sad that Ike's not a part of it anymore because I really enjoyed his view on things. It was very exciting. His public life made Solus a very exciting project. And I was actually once a contributor to that project. I was very much into Solus, even though I was you know, obviously primarily an open SUSE guy. But there was such an excitement in the project. I wanted to fund all the interesting technology that was being put into it because it does trickle to other distributions as well. Just because you contribute to Ubuntu or Solus or whatever doesn't mean it doesn't affect OpenSUSE. At least it may not be directly, but it does help because the work on Budgie does affect OpenSUSE, because there's Budgie for OpenSUSE. Now, it's not really of interest to me. I moved on. I have no animosity or, or no ill will toward the project. It's just not for me. And as long as a project can, as long as a project can continue, be kind about things, I'm not necessarily saying be nice, but be kind and be respectful to other people, but always keep things welcoming, I think is the best strategy. We had a recent issue within GNOME and some changes in GNOME that caused some disagreements between System76 and the GNOME project, where there was what I would consider an amicable split. The goals of System76 were no longer aligning with the goals of GNOME. And so the, the course of action going forward from System76 was to create their own desktop environment. And that seems very reasonable to me. If things are no longer jiving, if things don't mesh well together anymore, you know, you're probably better off finding another way. Although it's unfortunate that GNOME and System76 cannot continue to collaborate as they had, this is the best way forward. And, and maybe there's going to be some sort of return or meshing in the future. But you know, for right now, it makes sense for these two projects to go kind of their separate ways. This episode of Linux LR is brought to you by Bitwarden. One thing we can do to protect ourselves is having unique passwords for every online account that we have. I've been using Bitwarden for a while now to do just that. 
and not only helps me keep track of the many passwords I now have, it includes a random password generator, you can set the length of special characters, and so much more. Bedira, it's open source, receives third-party security auditing, and you can get started for free by going to bitwarden.com DLN. Want some of their premium features like one gigabyte of file storage, vault health reports, or just support the project? It starts for only $10 a year. Jump over to bitwarden.com DLN to get started with your free account now. While we're talking about projects and ebbs and flows and changes in leadership and all the other fun things, Wendy, you have a change in distro, I'm assuming, from what it just shows here on the show notes? Yeah, you missed it last week where I had an issue with the kernel, the specialty kernel, on my Service Pro 6 and went ahead and threw Fedora 35 on there. Of course, it still has the specialty kernel. One of the nice things about that kernel is they have it packaged for multiple different distributions and they did have it for fedora 35 as well and i seem to be hanging around with i don't know whether they're a bunch of bad influences or good influences but i realized i had this empty drive just hanging out in my main system with nothing on it and i'd completely forgotten that it was in there because the drive was wiped and i mean there was no partitions on it at all so every time i'd open up my browser i wouldn't see it Well, I had a live USB of Fedora 35 running on my main system and happened to see in the partition manager that I've got this blank drive in there and have went ahead and thrown Fedora 35 on my main system. I still have my Manjaro drive in there ready to go at a moment's notice. But Neil had been saying that there was OpenCL working and this other stuff going on. And I told him that I would love to try Fedora again. I actually came from my original distribution was Corora. I really enjoyed Fedora, but when it came to me switching over to an Arch base after Corora kind of died and went away and I was trying to find my Linux home again, Manjaro was one of the easiest to set up and thanks to the AUR was the easiest to get OpenCL running and working. So it wasn't a full Arch the Archway, which we've talked about before, I typically don't have time for, and OpenCL CL is really important when you're doing batch processing of photos, large processing of photos. And now as we're thinking about getting a 3D printer and using Blender, having that OpenCL function in the use of Blender is going to be extremely important for the function of the system, the speed of making it all work, and offloading some of that work from the CPU to the GPU itself. And so I'm like, okay, I'll bite. I've actually really been enjoying Fedora 35 on my Surface Pro 6. Visual Studio Code was actually running so much better on it than it was on Manjaro. But the version of Visual Studio Code that I pulled was from the AUR. I was having a hard time getting some of the extensions to even show up at all. So I had to go to the extension portion of VS Code and pull them in. And yeah, I was just having some issues with that. And so I'm like, okay, I'll bite. I'll try it out. But I told him it can't be my only distro because we have this VR headset. And this is the system that that has to work on through these different influences I've been hanging out with in the evenings and that kind of stuff. They're like, well, 
you probably shouldn't need those additional drivers that you've pulled in from the AOR because it says, you know, during reading that you should be kind of plug and play with your VR headset. That Steam, Steam VR should have some of those drivers built in. And I'm like, okay, let's try it. Like I've already got this fresh install of Fedora 35. It says it's supposed to work. Can we make it work? Did I not need to pull in these open VR drivers from the AUR? And nope, it's not reading it. Did some looking in the back end. Yeah, the hardware can be seen, but there's just not that proper communication between the headset and Steam in order to make it work. So there's been this super awesome person on the back end working on these VR drivers and trying to get them into Fedora. I'm not sure if he's willing to have his name on the show or not, so I'm not going to say it for right now, but... He knows who he is, and many of you out there probably know who he is. Some of the concerns for these open VR drivers is where are they going to put them? Where can they legally put them because of Fedora itself? And right now, the last communication I had with him is they're going to end up having to right now go into the copper repos. We're going to do some different testing. He said, you know, it may take more than one. We may try it this time. It doesn't work. It might take some testing and some reinstalls and all of that fun stuff. And I'm like, that's fine. I am totally cool with doing the testing, with playing with it, trying to figure out how to make it work. Oh boy. Just so that Fedora can also have the resource of having these awesome, awesome VR drivers. Well, I think Fedora is a great distribution. It just doesn't quite fit what I like, but it's so close and it would be a great number two for me. And I'm glad that you're finding ways to make it work for you. Although you have not complained about Manjaro, its stability at all. So I'm not sure what you're gaining, how you work on your computer going from Manjaro to Fedora, but I'm all about Fedora. The biggest reason for the change was last week. It just not playing Manjaro, not playing well with that specialty kernel, which... You know, I know that there will be breakage. It really doesn't matter what distribution you're using. If you're adding another layer on top of it, a special layer with the kernel, you're bound to have some sort of issues. So Fedora might give me a little bit more stability on the Surface Pro. I don't know. Just kind of wait until it breaks. But I did have a distro hopping itch. I've kind of had one for a while. It was kind of nice to do a fresh install of something else. It was kind of nice to see what changes Fedora has made since the last time that I've used it. But stability-wise for me, Manjaro's been pretty gosh dang awesome on my main system. There's no specialty hardware in there. It's pretty basic, I guess you could say, as far as that goes. So I have no hard feelings toward Manjaro, but it is nice to see some of these items that I went to Manjaro for coming to Fedora, which is my original Linux home. Well, you know, whatever works, that's always what I think. And if uh, Fedora does the job better for you, that's good. If it's Manjaro, that's good too. You're back to building things, Nate, but this is something on a much larger scale. I'm a little jealous of this project, and I know when Magneto hears about it, he will be too. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, I have all this space here, what I call cubicle labs, 
So I'm building an open source CNC. I have all the parts purchased and I'm just waiting on things to show up. Uh, there's some parts that have to be printed yet. And so that's going to take a little time. I have a lot of knowledge gaps in running a CNC. In fact, based on all the knowledge gap, I just know in the high level, the academic sense, what has to be done, but the actual implementation of how you do things, I don't know that yet, you know, running tool paths and so forth. There is a project called Linux CNC. So I know that it's a thing. And my goal in all this is to have a fully open source or as open source as possible CNC manufacturing capability. So I can obviously it's not manufacturing necessarily, but this is a manufacturing step, but to be able to take some raw material and cut and shape things into a product. So I'm really excited about this. I've been wanting a CNC for quite some time now, and I'm now afforded the time and the space to do it. So I'm going to do this. I'm hoping this is the beginning of a lot of other things. I'd like to essentially find a way. One, I want to build something. I don't just want to work for somebody else. I want to build something, build a business, and be able to offer products or services here locally. And I want to be able to very proudly say that it's an open source company. I'm in the early stages of it right now. I'm hoping by the end of April to be operational, probably not fully operational, but at least be going through the process of learning how to use the CNC and learning how to take what I design in FreeCAD and do the tool paths, bring them to the CNC machine. I'm hoping I can get it to all run on OpenSUSE. That's a bonus, but baby steps here. I just want to be able to understand how to use Linux CNC and then see, because I do have like basically a fun distribution around Debian for it. I think it'd be a lot cooler if it running on OpenSUSE, but right now I just want to have something functional and do something I want to do for a long time. It would really make your space more of Cubicle Labs than it is now. Yeah, it's another step in being able to do more experiments, build more things and to do more things out here. You know, right now there's still some boxes in the way and we talked about the process of moving and how some things just don't get unwrapped. I've gone through 20 some odd boxes in the last couple of weeks, purging stuff, giving things away, putting things in recycling or pitching them. I have just about enough cleared out that I can start building, but I don't have the table yet to build anyway. And still waiting on some parts to do the building. The space is opening up and I'm really excited about that. Very soon here, I'll be Cubicle Labs with more than just a place that holds a bunch of boxes from a move to an actual shop floor and workbenches and so much more. What are the kind of things that you're hoping to build with the CNC machine? In the short term, I have some work already lined up, some people who need to get some things cut. They're using other resources right now, but they would like to divert the work toward me. Initially, I just want to be able to do custom cuts. The next thing would be actually going out and looking for projects to do. Sometimes restaurants or breweries, they want to have like custom flight boards or cutting boards or whatever. And I'd like to get into making specialized custom things for people who want a small run of something. There are things too, like, you know, cutting diamond plate flooring for Jeeps or for vehicles. I have a lot of the templates for that as well. For me personally, without divulging too much, I have a lot of like retro inspired things that I'd like to start building or provide kits for. And so having the ability to cut materials out of raw material essentially is what I'd prefer to do. And not that 3D printing is a bad way to produce something, but it's kind of limited. It's a lot slower. And also the final product isn't as strong as something that would be cut out of a material instead. But there are a lot of uh, nerdy computer things I, that I can see there's a market for out there. I'm going to be going after a lot of that. Awesome. I can't wait for the virtual tour of the updated Cubicle Labs. So Matt, I may be playing with machinery that has the potential to cut my finger off, but you're playing with something else. Of course, I have the game of the week, which, uh, you know, shock, surprise. Hey, I haven't been here for two. So, you know, at least the last stack of games was a nostalgia trip for you two because you're welcome. And it was only what, <laughs> $5, I believe, for four games. <laughs> Sorry, $5 for six games. My bad. The game that I have is one called Stranger in Paradise Final Fantasy Origins. This is a 
third person action combat game. Uh, I wouldn't really call it an RPG, but it has RPG mechanics based on Final Fantasy. It's more of a Dark Souls type game, really focuses on combat and that kind of stuff is what I mean when I say that. It's not necessarily hard, but it's a kind of a reimagining and a retelling of the very first Final Fantasy game. So you can call it a prequel or reimagining, however you want to word it. Combat's pretty good. I enjoy the combat. It's probably the best part of the game. The storytelling elements, you can tell it was done by a company who does not focus on story, though I would question whether or not Square Enix focuses on story anymore given their recent releases of Final Fantasy games. This is definitely a game that you will either like or dislike based on what your preference is. Is it gameplay or is it presentation and story and that kind of stuff. Now I'm playing this on the Xbox Series X. I was given a review code by Square Enix to review this game. So I have no like monetary attachment to this. So any criticism I have is strictly, I don't want to use the term unbiased, but it's strictly just from observation of what I'm seeing. So I have no love nor hate for this game emotional attachment is not there you know sometimes i find if you have the financial investment and you dislike a game you really dislike a game so for me this is one of those games that you're either gonna like i said you're either gonna like it or you're not unfortunately if on pc it is an epic game store exclusive so find what you may there some people will love it hate it again i'm not playing it on pc i'm playing it on xbox so not a game for everybody i will say that some of the presentation is a bit rough for me like example like the gameplay will be at a solid 60 frames though it'll go to like an in-engine game cut scene and you can start seeing like stutters it's really weird so again that's on xbox not pc it's just really weird given the fact that the game looks like a high-end ps2 early ps3 game eh it is what it is as far as that you do have two choices in the game it's either performance or essentially pretty you know <laughs> do you want ray tracing and all that stuff i just went with performance and i still notice those things so pick your poison i wouldn't say it's a 60 dollar game and i'll leave it at that it looks cool but when you say ps2 ps3 maybe the advertising trailers are set to maximum and rendered nice but the gameplay itself you say or in-game graphics are more older playstation look to it or something yeah i w- probably ps2 is probably being a little too disingenuous i would probably say something along the lines <laughs> of it looks last gen as a in comparison to say playing a game like the last of us on ps3 it's very graphically okay it's just not by current standards after you've played things like cyberpunk and all the other kind of like real high fidelity games and all you know that focus on graphics they're just kind of meh in comparison and not what you would expect from like a typical like final fantasy game where if you've played final fantasy 15 which nate i know you haven't because it's too new i haven't played any final fantasy i was confused when there's a final fantasy 2 i thought there wasn't already a final fantasy and now there's a 2 how can you have a second final fantasy if the first one wasn't final Uh, nate they're up to final fantasy 16 oh my gosh but anyway talk about rinse and repeat no kidding right well there's actually a story behind that the reason they call it final fantasy was square soft at the time was supposed to go out of business so that is like their send-off the game came out and they didn't go out of business because of said game so now it just became an established franchise so that's why oh okay that's the short version but anyway this particular game 
it's just one of those things like you'll either like the graphics or you won't. For some people, graphics are everything. And for others, it's not. For me, I'm kind of indifferent. This game is, I know that it's about the combat and not necessarily about the presentation. I'm more air on the side of the gameplay as opposed to the presentation. It doesn't look like something that would appeal to me, but you know, it's uh, it's all good. Well, I don't play games that generically appeal to you, Nate. I know. I'm just saying. I mean, it looks neat, but I'm more of a secret of Monkey Island kind of guy. Nate, you're a... Uh... Never mind. You're anything between 1990... I'll go up to Chrono Trigger, so 95. Well, I did get the new Lego Skywalker Saga, so can't be too harsh on me and my lack of, you know, something. Your lack of gaming. (laughs) My lack of gaming. Yeah, that's it. Uh, No, but so yeah, you'll either like it or you won't. That's where I'll leave it. Now it's your turn to toss in your two cents on today's topics. Hit the discourse forums, drop us a comment under this video, or use the contact form by visiting dlnxtend.com slash contact. If you'd like to hang out with us on our preferred social media platforms, see the link at the bottom of the show description. Also look at other great shows across the network like Hardware Ice, GameSphere, and Linux Saloon. And you can find many more at destinationlinux.network. Show off your love for your favorite podcasts and shows by visiting the DLN merch store. Grab yourself some awesome swag like the gamer-centric I paused my game to be here t-shirt. As always, we thank you for joining us, and we'll be back next week with another awesome episode of Linux Out Loud. Until then, keep the banner friendly, conversation somewhat on topic, and have fun doing it.